An extended family is gathered for a great banquet. They're in the city of Shiloh. This is where the temple of God is. They've traveled from their homeland, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, a full day's journey through the wilderness, north and west. And now they sit before an amazing spread of food and drink. In the morning, they're going to get up And all together, they're going to go to the temple to make their sacrifices to the Lord. They come here every year for the same reason, to express their gratitude for God's goodness and faithfulness. But tonight, it's time to celebrate and enjoy. Everyone around the table is delighted. There's laughter and joy and good, good food. Can you picture that as it gets closer to lunch? I sure can. Everyone, everyone is filled with joy and food, with one exception. There's a woman who's sitting beside her husband, and she hasn't touched her plate. Her name is Hannah. Her husband, beside her, Elkanah, he knows why she's not eating. She is a woman who has wanted something for a long time that she doesn't have. And she's not able to do anything to get it. She wants a child. Her husband knows it. They've been working at it, but it's not happening. And across the table from Hannah, there sits a woman. Her name is Penina. She also is married to Elkanah, her husband. This is a story that takes place 31 centuries ago, back when men had more than one wives, and that was accepted. Penina sits beside her children, sons and daughters on both sides, and they're fidgeting, and they're causing trouble, and Penina loves every bit of it. Because when Penina looks across the table, she sees Elkanah next to Hannah, and he know, she knows that, that Elkanah actually loves Hannah more than he loves her. And so, as Hannah sits there in the grief of childlessness, Penina looks at her, and she smiles. Have you ever had somebody smile at you because you're miserable? It's evil. But every year they travel together to this feast, every single time. Penina does everything she can to remind Hannah that she is a failure in the most important way that a wife in those centuries can be a failure, and that is why Hannah is not eating. Elkanah is such a dear man. He knows his wife is heartbroken and depressed. And now, as everybody's celebrating, she actually hangs her head and she begins to cry at the meal. Have you ever been so sad that you cry in front of a group of people who are having a good time? It's because she wants something very good that she doesn't have. Elkanah, this dear husband, he turns to his wife, he puts his hand on her shoulder, and he speaks to her. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? 
Am I not more to you than 10 sons? You know, some of you, you face situations in your life right now that are different than you wish and you can't eat because of it. Where you don't have what you want and so you cry. And Elkanah, he loves his wife and he wants her to know he sees what she's suffering through and he asks her, why? Why not eat? He's saying to her, because it will be good for you. Why not have a drink? It'll cheer you up. God gave us wine to gladden the human heart. And then he's, he's trying so hard to lift her up. And then that last thing that he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Well, that's proof that husbands have been saying stupid things to their wives for over 3,000 years. Right? What do you do when you don't have what you want? I'm not talking about a small petty thing, but I mean a good thing, the kind of thing that you would believe God would want you to have because you know who God is and you know God's benevolence and you love God and you're working really hard at trusting God, but what if, you, what if all that's true and you don't have what you want? You're alone, and you want somebody who you can love and who can love you in return. You are watching this dream that God gave you go nowhere, and you're doing everything you can to make it happen, but it's not working. Or you have to watch someone that you care about so deeply going the wrong way, and you can't seem to do anything to change it, and you... It's been a long time. For Hannah, it had been many years that she was coming over and over and many years that she had to watch Penina grow up with children there and she had to sit by herself. What do you do? What I want you to do, and I do, I, I want every one of you to do something in a situation like that. I want you to learn to trust God. Specifically, this is an active thing, specifically by choosing to tell God what you don't have that you wish you had, so that, listen now, regardless of the outcome, not dependent on whether you receive what you asked for, the, the mysterious but perfect peace of God finds its way into your heart and into your mind so that whatever comes of your prayer, you have this transcendent divine peace that is beyond you to understand because your faith tells you that now that you have told God, all is well because you belong to Christ and he holds you in his hands and, and, and because of that, all is well. That's what I want for you this morning. In the scriptures, there's a moment, it's very concise where there's a bit of teaching for people like Hannah. It comes from the Apostle Paul. It offers guidance along with a promise for those who face circumstances that they can't change which they wish were different. If you have a Bible, find your way to Philippians chapter 4. There, Paul teaches in verse 6 this way. Do not worry about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here we're told what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Let's start with what we shouldn't do. Do not worry about anything. Worry 
is that mental and emotional preoccupation with circumstances that are outside of your control that you wish were different than they are, but you can't seem to do anything to change them. So your mind and your heart, they dwell on that change which you want in an unproductive way. Do we have any experts in worry in the room? You ruminate. You think in circles, imagining that bad future over and over again, and then after you've imagined it, you imagine it one more time, always looking down the road and and feeling miserable and discouraged and hopeless because things are not right. What do you worry about? I, I didn't ask, do you worry, because we all worry. What is it for you? Are you worried about the relationships in your life that you wish were different? Are you worried about your job? Are you worried about having enough money, about making those payments? Are you worried about your children? Are you worried about your parents' health? Are you worried about your children's parents' health? That's your health. (laughs) Are you worried about the economy? Are you worried about the climate? Are you worried about politics? Are you worried about the globe, the government? Are you worried about everything? The man who wrote these words, do not worry about anything. You might think, well, he probably had it easy. This man reported that he was in constant worry over the churches that he was involved in. And this is Paul. He planted a lot of churches. What happened for him is as he would help people grow in faith and then move to another place, he would imagine them back there and think, I hope nobody's coming in there to mislead them because he knew how easy it is for people to believe the wrong things. And it really got into his heart. He worried about the circumstances that they had to exist in. They lived in an empire that was against Christianity and Paul knew they might fall to pieces and not have the strength to make it. He also knew how petty people can be in churches and he thought it might just all blow up and he was constantly worried about all of those things. I have to tell you as a pastor, I can relate. Not not as much as him, but it's so easy to have a million things to be anxious about, isn't it? This is true, don't you think? You need to help me here. Is this true? Yes. Yes. So again, what is it for you? Does worry make it hard for you to sleep? For a lot of folks, it makes it hard to get to sleep. For others, it makes it hard to stay asleep. For some, it makes it hard to sleep at all. For some, like Hannah, it makes it hard to enjoy the good things in life, like food and drink. It closes us off. It makes us powerless. That's what worry does. It makes it so we can't apply the agency which God has built into our lives toward productive outcomes. And so we're stuck. Why? Because we're trapped in worry. I know that some of you know exactly what I mean. Hannah sits hungry and crying because she's been worrying all of this time about not having a child. For years, it's been in her heart. Here we are taught, do not worry about anything. What should we do instead? Look again. There's positive guidance that Paul adds. In everything, by prayer and supplication, that word supplication means an earnest Asking. It means a specific and pointed request. Through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, he counsels in that way because he deep down believes that God is good. He trusts that God is good. And so every time he envisions someone speaking to God in prayer, he imagines the proper attitude would be one of thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. This instruction is simple. Tell God exactly what you want. Whatever 
you are worried about, tell God about it. And describe to him your desires. Listen, don't just hear this as a teacher up here talking. Let these words go into your mind and your heart right now, and you try them out, okay? Tell God about what you want. Don't hide what you're going through from God. When you're in that same mental and emotional rut again, take a deep breath and speak to God silently about what you are facing. Let God know your requests. When your mind is racing in circles, tell yourself, stop, and then say to God, this is what I want. This is what I don't have. Oh, God, hear me. Listen to me. Whatever you worry about, this is what you're supposed to do. It says right there, do you notice the first two words? In everything. And that means very directly that there is nothing at all that you are not to bring to him. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too big. The only qualifier for you to bring it to him is that it causes you to worry. What is it for you? It might be someone that you love who's having a hard time, a sister or a child. It might be a future that you have in your heart, but you're not sure, and you want it to come together so badly for good reasons. It might be a wound that festers and takes away your energy and your trust, and you want God to take it away. What is it for you? For Hannah, let's be clear, it's not just that she wants a baby. It's the entire shameful complex that comes 3,100 years ago with being a woman who doesn't have a child. In her environment, it was taken as a sign that God was against you. It was a reason to feel that you were worthless. And there she has to live in that. And that is something to feel profoundly bad about. And now, Really try to picture this. Here she is coming together with all of these people who are celebrating God's faithfulness in an official way yet again. And she has no reason to believe in God's faithfulness based on what she's experienced. But what has she got? She's got the opportunity to choose to trust. That's what she's got. Last week, I spoke in detail about the difference between trust as a feeling and trust as a decision. Were some of you here for that? If you weren't, you can always find that on, the, on our website and look at it. I would encourage you to do that. She has the decision before her whether to trust. And this is what happens. Everybody else begins to leave the table behind. They've all had plenty to eat and drink. They're all making their way back to the rooms that have been rented for them in Shiloh so that in the morning they can get up and go to the temple. But what Hannah does is she waits for people to disperse in the shadows and then all by herself, she walks to the temple. She goes to the place where the priests lift the prayers of the people to God and she makes her way right under the arch doorway and she comes into the place where the priests do their ministry and she's by herself in the dark. Only there's a priest who's right beside the doorpost in the deepest, darkest shadows who watches her come in, but he doesn't let on that he's seen her, probably because he's surprised and his name is Eli. In the morning, he's the one who'll oversee. But now, he stands back and he watches this woman come in. And she's come there for a reason. She's come there to tell God about what she wants. To let God know her desires. That's what trust looks like. You 
are invited to do that. You are called to do that. God is waiting for you to do that. As she approaches, listen to how she's described. This is verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Here is someone who is completely and totally sincere in God's presence. She is deeply distressed. She's bringing everything that she's carrying into the presence of God, and she is weeping, and not just crying, but weeping bitterly. Can you picture that? Have you ever had one of those moments where all of your defenses are down, and it's all just flowing out of you? That's what's happening to her in this moment as she stands there in the presence of God. And then she opens her uh, she, she opens her heart before God and she makes a request and she makes a promise too. Look at verse 11. She made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. Here is one of those rare moments where we're given a vision up close of what a prayer looks like when it emerges from a heart that has decided to trust God. The way in which she presents her needs and her desires to God. The way she phrases it, exactly what she says, it's instructive for us. Let's pause here for a moment and consider what we see in her prayer. There, is, uh, there are marks of what she does that could become for you and for me signposts for how we ought to pray if we're going to pray in trust. The first thing that stands out to me is that she prays authentically. Do you notice that she says, look on the misery of your servant? She feels miserable in the presence of God, and instead of hiding it, she tells God, have you ever had that feeling that the thing that you're carrying in your heart must not be acceptable to God? So if you're going to be around God, you have to hide that. Have you ever struggled with that? I know a lot of people do. They think they're not supposed to be angry at God. Uh, People believe that faith means always being confident and always feeling secure in God. Have you ever struggled with that? It's not true. Faith is authenticity before God saying, I am miserable. Look at me. And she does that in prayer. You could do that. The second thing is is the humility that's in her prayer. And this is beautiful. Consider that she's asking God for something. And you might think, who does she think she is? Does she think that God is her servant and she's in charge telling God what he has to do for her? No, in her prayer, even as she makes a request of God, she still sees that she is the one who comes to the master and not the other way around. And you can see it in the fact that she refers to herself three times in one prayer with the same words, your servant. Do you notice? Your servant, she says. So even as she approaches God with her request, she understands the proper relationship between her and the one she's come to. He is the master, the Lord. She is the servant, and yet she still asks him for what she wants. Humility, that's a second quality. Here, the third thing, this one's a little harder to see, but if we slow down, we'll see it. It's her goal, the goal of her prayer. Listen. She's asking not to serve the mission of Hannah. That's not why she asks for a child, to serve her mission. She asks for a child to serve God's mission. And we know this because of the promise she makes. 
She does not say, give me a child and I'll enjoy him every day of my life and I'm going to shove him right in Penina's face. It would be easy to want to do that, don't you think? No, she says, you give me a child and I will set him before you. Uh, There's no use pretending here. This is authentic. She really means it. She wants to see this gift come to her so that she can have her part in the mission that God is giving to her. These three qualities, authenticity and humility and having the right mission behind your requests, all three of them, they are the ingredients of the kind of prayer that emerges from a trusting heart coming to God and letting your requests be made known to him. Will you do that with what worries you? That's the big question. For for me, it is. Maybe the worries that you've shared with others, maybe the worries that you haven't been able to vocalize, will you do that? Will you make specific requests of God? Now, listen, I'm glad to hear you say yes. I know that some people will say no, and they'll say it for what feels to them like good theological reasons. The way they think about God will make them say of Hannah, wait a minute, who does Hannah think she is telling God? what she needs to do his mission. God knows better than Hannah. God is all-knowing. He doesn't need Hannah to tell him what she requires to do his mission. And after all, God is good. And if this good thing is needed by Hannah, well, God will give it to her, whether she asks for it or not, because God is good. And so don't go off asking God for specific things. Thank God. Let prayer change you. You're not going to change God with prayer. Has anyone ever said that? Prayer doesn't change God. It changes you. Have you heard that before? Of course, prayer does change you, but there's a flaw in that reasoning. Think of it like this. If God is going to give her the good thing she requires, whether she asks for it or not, why wouldn't God also give her every good thing she needs, whether she does anything at all for it or not? Like this, God wants me to be healthy, and in order to be healthy, I need good food. But as God has arranged the world, he hasn't force-fed me. In fact, he still puts me in the position of being free to choose to open yet another bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. (laughs) Seriously, the good that the Father wills for me requires something of me to become true in my life. That is how God has decided to arrange the world. And not just with the things that I do, but also with the things that I choose to ask of him. And I'm not telling you this because I've reasoned this out or it's my opinion. I'm telling you this because my responsibility as a pastor is to do the best that I can to unfold the word of God for you. And the Bible teaches that sometimes the prayers of ordinary people change the way reality unfolds because when God hears, sometimes he chooses to change things in a way that he might not have had those prayers not been offered. Did you know that? Do you know who Moses is? You know, Moses went up the mountain and got the Ten Commandments, right? And while he was up there with God, the people who were down below, the people of God, they were tired of waiting for him to come down with a word from God. And so what did they do? They gathered all of their jewelry up, they melted it and made a little golden calf, and then they all started dancing around that calf and saying, this is our God. On the way down from the mountain, God said to Moses, I'm so angry, I'm going to kill every one of them. That was what God decided to do. And Moses prayed, 
and said, God, would you please reconsider and have mercy on them instead? And this is what the Bible says. God changed his mind. It's Exodus, and I want to make sure I get this right, because if you don't believe me, you're going to have to look this up on your own later. 32.14. God does not destroy the people because Moses asked him not to, and God took counsel from Moses and decided to change the course of things. You might say, well, maybe that's a one-time standout, and in Hebrew, maybe it's different. There are other moments in the scriptures where this same dynamic is at play. Have you heard of Elijah? Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for three years and six months, no rain. And then he prayed that it would rain, and God opened the heavens, and the rain came down. Why? Well, James tells us because the prayer of a righteous man has a lot of power in it when God chooses to do what's asked for. And and the same happens in other places. Do you know the book of Jonah, the city of Nineveh? All those pagans are going to be destroyed. God's decided to destroy them, but then they pray and they ask for mercy and God decides not to destroy them, but to have mercy instead. Over and over again, the witness of scripture is that when ordinary people choose to trust God enough to tell them exactly what they want, sometimes God does things differently because of what his people ask. I'm going to make this personal for you. Sometimes, God will do things differently because of what you do when you follow the guidance that Paul gave in Philippians. When you do not worry, but instead, you let your requests be made known to him. Now, I know it doesn't happen every time because I've had many things that I've lifted to God in prayer And they've not turned out like I prayed. And I prayed authentically. And I prayed in humility. And I prayed with as best I could his mission in mind. And yet those things didn't come. And I've talked to many of you who I care about, who I know have prayed for really good things. And it's not come. I can tell you that Hannah prayed for a long, long time. I have had years where I prayed for something and it was years and then four years. The fog lifted, the nightmare ended and I saw the goodness of God. I've had other times where I prayed and it's not shifted. But listen to me now. The promise, the promise from God with regard to asking for what you desire, listen now, is not that if you ask in the right way, you'll get it. It's not that. It's different. It's for the disposition of your heart to shift whatever happens out there. We know this because if we come back to the teaching of Paul, we see, if we're attentive, that his promise is for something internal regardless of what happens externally. Look at verse 7 in Philippians 4. Here's the promise. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you pray, trusting God, the promised outcome is divine peace guarding your heart and your mind, a kind of settled confidence and well-being that cannot be understood. If you start to ask, how does it happen? What does it feel like? Exactly what are the dynamics at play? 
The answer is, it is beyond our grasp. We, we cannot. It's not because we're not smart enough. It's too much of a mystery to even understand. But the promise is there will be an emotional and mental state of calm that surpasses understanding. That is the absence of worry. And you must notice now, and this is what you must notice if you're going to be a maturing follower of Jesus, that there is nothing at all said here about whether you're going to get what you asked for. Nothing. He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't say, do this, and then you're going to get it. No, there is no promise if you pray in the right way that you're going to receive what you request, only that worry will depart. That that misery of anxiety every night and every morning will vanish as your heart and mind experience a transcendent, mysterious peace that will stand guard over all of your thoughts, and all of your feelings as trust, the choice to trust, changes your disposition right now in the present. And all of it is promised, look at these words, in Christ Jesus. Attentive readers of Paul's letters will notice that more than once he refers to being in Christ. And, and it's a phrase that we're not accustomed to using. We don't talk about being in somehow a collective gathering within a human being, but you may know that other places in the New Testament, we are described as the body of Christ. Each individually elements of somehow this humanity that's incorporated in the grace and in the kindness and in the gentleness and in the humility that is good enough to open his arms wide enough to hold all of us and to give himself for us. In Christ, God has come to give himself for us so that he can embrace all of us so that when we trust him, we are in a way incorporated into Jesus. We are in him. If that's hard to imagine, come back to the table where Hannah is for a moment and picture now that you're her with whatever it is that you're worried about. Your eyes are closed and then you see someone has sat beside you. You can sense that someone sat there and you open your eyes and imagine now it's Jesus. Wherever you need to imagine yourself to see him beside you, picture that. He sits beside you and now all of the grief and all of the attention that you've been giving to those other things in life evaporates as you look into his eyes. And as he looks at you, you can see no one has ever known me as well as this man. No one has ever cared so deeply about me as this man. No one can see through all of the charade that I put on as well as this man can. Nobody knows what's in the depths of my heart and what I need and what I want as well as he does. And then as he looks upon you, you are overwhelmed by a look of acceptance and kindness and benevolence. Jesus knows you. And then as you open your heart to him, imagine this, however you need to do it, that he says, I know, oh dear daughter, oh dear son, exactly what you need. And then he says, tell me everything about it. Tell me, I'll listen. And whatever you need to say, you're saying it to him and he hears you. And you know he hears you. And then, this is what it is to have the peace of God guard your heart and your mind. Excuse me. These dang emotions. <laughs> you know that he's got it in his hands. Something in your heart, it tells you. This one knows and he has it all in his hands. He's got me in his hands. He's got it all in his hands. And, and now you're not thinking about what's going to happen down there. You're just settled right now. Because you've told him. And you're able to trust. 
That's what Jesus wants for you and for me. That is exactly what happens, by the way, with Hannah. As she's praying fervently there in the temple, uh, Eli's watching her as she's weeping and pouring out her heart before God. She actually doesn't pray aloud. She prays silently, but the whole time her mouth is moving. She's sort of whispering, and, 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 and he can watch her. He sees her uh, seeming to sort of mutter through something, and Eli watching her. He knows about the celebration that just has happened at the house down the way. And what Eli thinks is, ah, here's a woman who's had far too much to drink. She's wandered away. He actually thinks she's drunk. And so what does he do? He does what good pastors do. He stands up and scolds her in church. (laughs) What are you doing? He says to her, how could you dishonor this place with your drunken spectacle? What is wrong with you? Don't you have any respect, woman? And now She turns and looks at him, and she is completely sober. And she is strong in the way that only a woman who has been open to God can truly be strong. And I imagine her looking at him with a look that makes him just back down. She says to him, I haven't had anything to drink. I'm pouring my heart out to God. She doesn't tell him what she's asking for. He is so moved by the power of this woman who has been trusting God that he says this. Look at this. This is verse 17. Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. He doesn't need to know what she asked for. He can see that what she needs is peace. And that's what you need. More even than you need that thing that you worry about to Turn in the direction that you're sure is best. What you need more than anything is peace. And so he says to her, go in peace. And what does she do? She leaves that place in peace. Watch what happens next. This is verse 18. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. She did the two things that she was too anxious to do earlier that night. The two simple things she needs. She had some of the leftovers and they they broke out a bottle of wine and they drank together and she smiled. And this, get this, this had nothing to do with any change in her circumstances. That's it. Nothing changed with her being a a woman who wanted to be a mom who couldn't be. What changed was the peace of God was now settled in her heart. And she ate and she drank and she was happy. Do you see it? God's will for you and for me and for this church altogether is to grow in trust so that we ask God and that we we experience his peace. Should I tell you how the story actually ends with Hannah? Because she goes back after this and then her, her husband and she spent time together. And she becomes pregnant. And the next year, she's not there at that banquet with everybody else, and she's not there in the temple because she's weaning this child who has come to her. And she names him Samuel. And that name in Hebrew means God has heard. Now, I, please take this. God hears you. 
Not just when you get what you've asked for. He hears you, dear friend. He hears you. She comes back later with this baby, and she brings Samuel to the temple where Eli is still at work, and at first Eli doesn't recognize her because it's the daytime. And he only saw her in the shadows, and she tells him, I'm the one who you thought was drunk. I'm the one who was praying in earnest, and what I'd asked for then was this child right here. And then she presents Samuel to Eli, and she says, he belongs to God forever. And she leaves him there. Isn't that amazing? And, and that's why the book is called Samuel. God hears you. Tell him what you need. Ask him. And then trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that we get to come together as brothers and sisters who have the needs which we have, which we know, which you know better than we know, and then to learn together. What we want is to grow so that we trust you better. We want that, each one of us individually. Those of us who are young want that. Those of us who are old want that. All of us together want that. We want it as a church. We thank you for Renaissance Church, which is such a gift. To each of us, this place has become a gift, and we are grateful for that. We thank you for the witness of Hannah and also the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And we ask now by the power of your Holy Spirit that what we've learned today would be like a good seed planted in fertile soil in our hearts and that day by day as we worry, which we will, that you would teach us to let you know what we want and that you would give us peace in our hearts and our minds that transcends all understanding as we are with and in Jesus Christ, your Son, our friend, our Savior, and our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen.